Welcome to Origins, the podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. For these next several episodes, we asked our LP friends at Sapphire Partners to step in as our guest hosts. We asked Sapphire Partners to lead the season because they're experts in the venture ecosystem, they partner with the best early stage venture funds, and they have a deep LP network to bring exciting new voices to the show. We're thrilled to call them an LP of our own, and we're grateful to have had their support since day zero of Notation. Sapphire is hosting these next episodes in support of their Open LP initiative. OpenLP is a community-sourced effort that amplifies and aggregates LP and GP voices across the venture ecosystem. So without further ado, let's get started. On this episode of Origins, we speak with Saul Klein, founding partner of Local Globe, a preeminent seed fund based in London, and Latitude, Local Globe's sister fund, investing in breakout companies at the Series B. Saul also co-founded SeedCamp, was formerly a general partner at Index for eight years, and had significant operational experience prior to that, having been, among others, part of the original executive team at Skype and co-founding Love Film, which ultimately sold to Amazon. Saul has been and continues to be an early champion of the European tech ecosystem. Saul, thank you so much for taking the time today to have this conversation. So why don't we dive right in and, and start at the beginning for your current role as an investor, you had significant experience as an operator, as CMO of Skype, co-founder of Love Film, various roles at Microsoft. Can you share your top two lessons learned from your transition as an operator to an investor? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I guess it's one of the perennial debates in venture is, you know, do entrepreneurs and operators uh, make better investors than people who haven't come from an entrepreneurial or operating background. The biggest advantage I guess you have coming from an operating or entrepreneurial background is that, you know, you've been on the journey yourself. And, you know, I was really fortunate to have seen different stages of the journey, both with company that I'd started myself. You know, you're in that really lonely stage of, is anyone going to use this product? Is anyone going to fund me? You know, will anyone even join me on this journey all the way through to the massive ramp and scale that we had at Skype? I think, you know, when I joined Skype, maybe there were 20, 30 people in the office. 12 months later, there were about 500 people. Also, I'd been through M&A. So I'd kind of been through the experience of joining a spin-out from the Media Lab called Firefly in 95 that we then sold to Microsoft in 97 and then went through a similar experience obviously at Skype where we ended up selling the company to eBay. So I guess I came to being an investor with a lot of relevant experience. But I think one of the hardest things to do in the transition from being an entrepreneur and an operator to being an investor is, you know, unlearning some of those things because, you know, as an investor, you know, it's not your company. You're backing founders and, you know, you're backing teams. Even if it's an industry or a sector you think you know something about or a business model you think you know something about, it's very likely that the approach that the team you're backing is taking is very different from the approach you would have taken three years ago, certainly five or 10 years ago. 
So I think, you know, as tempting as it is to think that there's a seamless transition from being an entrepreneur or an operator into being an investor, there are definitely some things that are super valuable. And I think the empathy is really valuable. Mm -hmm. And some of the expertise and some of the experience is really valuable. But actually, you know, you can really steer yourself and companies, I think, often down the wrong path by applying expertise or experiences that you think are relevant, but may not be. You know, you can be that person who's like, when we were at X, you know, we did Y. And, you know, the founder is thinking, well, you know, you're not in my business 24-7, And actually, you know, when you were doing your business, things were very different. Mm-hmm. So I think you've got to strike the balance between empathy, experience, and expertise and, you know, really think about, you know, what is it in that particular situation that, that is, is relevant? It's not always that easy to sort of maintain that distance, especially when you've been an entrepreneur and an operator yourself and you feel like, oh my God, I've been in a situation like this. This is what I would do. Great. Now, before moving on to kind of the, the local globe story, you also co-founded SeedCamp, I think, I believe while you're at Index. I've heard you talk about kind of your motivations founding SeedCamp, the attempt to bring some coherence to an incredibly fragmented ecosystem in Europe at the time. Can you share a little bit about this with our audience? Sure. The inspiration for Seed Camp was actually a conversation I had with an old friend, a guy called John Borthwick, who started Betaworks in New York. And then, you know, coming to Europe in 2002 to London and trying to raise money for, you know, what became Love Film after the bubble had burst. And there were basically only two funds in London who were looking at anything to do with the consumer internet because, you know, everyone thought the consumer internet was a joke in 2001, 2002. One of them was Index. And, you know, my old partner, Danny Reimer, had just moved from the Bay Area to set up Index's London office. And the other was what was then Benchmark Europe, which was, you know, Benchmark had expanded to Europe and Israel, now Balderton. And, you know, I just saw between 2002 and 2007 that if you were a first-time founder in Europe, it was really hard to raise money. You know, there wasn't a sort of a a very active or vibrant network of of co-investors or mentors, all of the things that nowadays we take for granted. But, you know, I'd seen definitely in the Bay Area, like a very mature ecosystem had formed And when I joined Index, also having seen what Skype was capable of doing, and I think that was a rallying cry for a lot of people in Europe, they realized you can build a global internet company out of Europe. The first thing I said to my partners at Index is I'd like to start effectively an open source VC, SeedCamp. And, you know, John had told me about Y Combinator, and Y Combinator then was both in Boston and in San Francisco. It's before they'd moved all of their operations to San Francisco. And I thought, wow, this is a really smart model, but it's going to have to work differently in Europe. So, you know, YC basically was, as far as I understand it, like a management company that was sort of half self-funded and half effectively sponsored by Sequoia, uh, who I think, you know, put money into the YC management company early on. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, I, my view was that that's just not going to work in Europe, or at least it's not going to do the job that we need in Europe. And the job I felt that we needed in Europe was to effectively have a club where as many funds and as many angels could participate, you know, in seed camp. So when Reshma and I went out to raise seed camp fund one over the summer of 20, 2007, it was you know, a tiny fund, 2.3 million euros. Our rule was that no one could invest more than 250K if you were a fund. And, you know, angels couldn't invest more than 50K because the idea actually was to have as many people involved as possible. So it was something that it felt like the community, you know, really had a stake in it. And I think, you know, what we needed to sort of address this challenge of, of fragmentation in Europe, which, you know, it's still pretty fragmented. But I mean, when I say it was fragmented, there was no real connective tissue between London and Paris. There was no real connective tissue between London and Cambridge. So, you know, we had to create a structure that meant everyone that wanted to participate could, and that no one would feel like this was their thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I pitched that to my partners at Index, and they said, and, you know, my basic pitch was, if we want to be investing in this ecosystem 20 years from now, we need to help nourish, you know, the foundations of this ecosystem. And maybe we'll find some great companies here, but it's not really about that. It's about sort of creating this community and this network. And they said, yeah, that sounds great. Go ahead. And I said, you know that we're going to have no special rights on any of these deals. And you know that you know, our peers or our competitors are going to have the ability to invest the same amounts as us. And people said, yeah, go for it. You know, I knew actually, you know, this is really a, a reflection of index and my partners there that I was also in the right place. And that index, you know, was thinking bigger than just their business. They were thinking about, you know, Europe is certainly was at this point, like an ecosystem play, not just a fund play. Great. Now, kind of shifting our conversation to Local Globe and the impressive platform you and your team built, maybe to start kind of as a benefit for those listening that aren't as familiar and to set some context, how would you describe the Local Globe investment strategy at a high level? So, you know, I think Local Globe is what we would nowadays call a pre seed and seed fund or a seed fund. You know, we look to be the fund of choice for founders looking to raise their pre-seed and seed round and get to the best possible Series A. We are totally focused with Local Globe on doing that job. And, you know, what it means is that obviously we work very closely with the angel ecosystem and having been angels ourselves, you know, we understand profoundly the value that angels bring to the early stage ecosystem. We work with accelerators and incubators, because having started SeedCamp, you know, we understand the value that folks like SeedCamp, YC, nowadays Entrepreneur First and others bring to the ecosystem. And, you know, we've put together a, a sort of hopefully a proposition and also a set of services, because one of the things I led at Index was the creation of our services platform. And actually, that was based on a lot of learnings I generated from seed camp and also YC and first round capital and sort of, you know, being in, inspired by, by what they were doing. 
But yeah, we're totally focused on being that seed partner to Series A. And I guess, you know, what we hear from founders and what I know having been a founder myself is that, you know, one of the most important things that you look for in a seed investor is their ability to help you get a great Series A. And I think, you know, there is a very empirical metric that founders can now look at because there's so much more data in the ecosystem now. And, you know, the metric that we would encourage founders to look at is like, you know, when you raise money from a given fund, what is their conversion rate from seed? And by a given fund, I mean a given seed fund, what is their conversion rate from seed to Series A? And in Europe, at least, on average, only 17% of companies that raise a seed round go on to raise a Series A. So there's an 83% failure rate. Our conversion rates from seed to Series A is in the mid to high 60%. And, you know, ourselves and a couple of other funds, you know, have that kind of a conversion rate. And what we know is that helping companies successfully navigate that journey from I've raised seed to I've raised the Series A is one of the most important things that seed founders are looking for. And we've tried to optimize our value proposition and our support to founders to do as good a job of that journey as possible. And then, you know, the other metric obviously one looks at is how much follow-on capital do those seed companies raise? And in the last 12 months, the local globe portfolio across different vintages, of course, I think raised over $3 billion. You know, it's that ability to sort of help founders navigate that journey, find great Series A partners, I think, you know, that we've really, really focused on. We're sector agnostic. So, you know, we do deals in healthcare, we do deals in robotics, we do deals in fintech. You know, one of my partners, Suzanne, I remember three years back, in the same quarter, she invested in a low orbit satellite business just outside of Oxford, and in the same quarter, invested in a B2B marketplace for beauty professionals. And I think that's one of the great things about our ecosystem is the diversity of opportunities. So we we choose to be sector agnostic. And then I, I guess from a geography standpoint, we talk about our core geography being a four-hour train ride from where we're sitting in King's Cross, London, which means that you know Paris is part of that core geography. Paris is two and a half hours away. Amsterdam is part of that core geography because it's four hours away, but certainly Oxford, Cambridge, Manchester, Bristol, etc. And, you know, we call that geofence a four-hour train ride from King's Cross, New Palo Alto. And it turns out that after the Bay Area and Beijing, New Palo Alto has produced more unicorns than any other geography globally. So, you know, we think that's a good place for our core focus. We allocate probably about 80% of our capital towards that core geography. And then we allocate about 20% of our capital to great companies, great founders we come across outside of that core, where two of the following three things are true. One, we know the founder. Two, we know the co-investor. And three, New Palo Alto will be an important source of capital by Series B. 
And, you know, that's allowed us to build up a great portfolio, for example, in, in Israel. You know, we've made investments in Berlin. We've made investments in the U.S. And, you know, by the time those companies, you know, get to their Series B, you know, we're often able to be, like, really helpful as they come and land and expand in, into Europe. Super helpful. How's your strategy adapted to the kind of increasingly dynamic um, venture landscape in, in Europe over the years? You guys, we've been fortunate to have as, as LP since we started in 2015. And you'll know that our strategy basically has not changed. And, you know, we were very focused on basically, I guess, three, three things. You know, number one is investing for the long term in our infrastructure. And by that, I mean, not just our physical environments, and we've got a great space just by King's Cross Station uh, called Phoenix Court. And, you know, that's a space not only that our team works out of, but is available to all of the founders that we work with. So, you know, we've invested heavily in creating a, a great environment. We've invested heavily in our team. And, you know, obviously when my dad and I left Index in 2015, it was just the two of us. Now we have an investment team of 12, including the two of us, and an operations team of six and venture partners and special advisors and really kind of around 25 people in the organization, plus 30 or more what we call fellows, so sort of C-level execs, uh, either active or former operators at you know, companies like Amazon and DeepMind and Skyscanner and King and Deliveroo, et cetera, to sort of help support the portfolio. We've invested heavily in our software and our data infrastructure, as, as, as you know. So number one, investing for the long term in our infrastructure. I mean, the space that we're in, we got a 20-year lease, for example. And I think, you know, the, all of that is important because it makes it clear to our LPs, to the founders that we work with, uh, to our team, you know, that we are really investing for the long term and that as we raise more funds, you know, we are invest, we continue to invest in that infrastructure. And I think, you know, that is really important to take a long-term view. And that goes back to my point about you know, we are a business and I still feel like I'm an entrepreneur and I'm an operator, even though obviously, you know, our business is making investments. So that's point number one. And, you know, we have been consistent there and we continue to be consistent there. And, you know, as we see the opportunity get bigger, you know, we continue to invest as you guys are doing in Europe by opening up an office here and as Sequoia is doing in Europe by opening up an office here, as GC is doing in Europe by opening up an office here, as Lightspeed is doing, etc. So, and that kind of gets to sort of point two in the strategy. So we have always believed that this ecosystem, UK, Europe, New Palo Alto, is one of the highest potential markets globally in tech and venture. 20 years ago, that was a stupid idea. 
10 years ago, it was kind of like a weird idea. Five years ago, it was a strange idea. But today, as I said, and you see this, you know, as LPs have come, as founders have come, as talent has come, as the funds have come, that that's no longer a stupid idea. So we've always believed that our ecosystem was capable of world-class returns, and we think we're just getting started there. We use the phrase, not just internally, you've heard it from us a million times, is that, you know, it took us 20 years, and by us, I mean the ecosystem, it took this ecosystem 20 years to get to the starting line, and now's where it gets interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every metric you choose to look at, you know, like in the UK, for example, there was a billion euros of venture capital in 2010. There was 13 billion in 2020. In the UK, there were eight unicorns in 2010. The UK was the third country in the world to pass 100 unicorns, and that was in 2020. So, you know, everything has just, I think, started to show that this is not an ecosystem that can't deliver world-class returns yep. and create world-class businesses. And I mean, that's just getting more and more true by the quarter. So that's number two. So, you know, that this is a great ecosystem to invest in at all stages. And we can get into that if you want. And then the third thing is... And, and I think this is still a bit of a contrarian view, is that, you know, you can generate great returns, but also have a positive impact on the society in which you, in which you operate. And, you know, what we've done there, I think is quite different as far as we know. Um, from 2015, when we institutionalized Local Globe and we left Index, we have allocated 2% of carry in every fund and 10% uh, of any profits in the management company to a foundation. And the focus of that foundation, first and foremost, is our neighborhood. And the neighborhood in which we're based, although it's in central London, is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the UK. It's one of the lowest income neighborhoods in the UK. And, um, you know, beyond that, in terms of in investments that we're making through the foundation in the neighborhood, we will also, you know, invest more broadly in, in the ecosystem. So, for example, you know, one of the things we've recognized is that the venture industry has not really invested in training very much or L&D. Now, there's not a VC that hasn't sat across the board table and said, hey, you know, how much are you investing in L&D? You know, people are your most important asset. Mm -hmm. But if you ask any venture fund, actually most PE funds, and say, well, how much of your OPEX are you investing in L&D? Most of them will give you a blank stare. And, you know, other than the Kaufman Fellowship, which is amazing, but, you know, you've got to be able to afford 70 grand and three flights a year to San Francisco. There was no real way for, you know, people coming up in the venture business to sort of 
you know, learn their trade. And most training was kind of like medieval. It was like being a, the blacksmith's apprentice. You know, it's like an apprenticeship business. And when eight out of the world's largest companies were venture-backed, and venture contributes as much as it does in terms of jobs and economic value to the economy, surely we got to be beyond the Middle Ages. So, you know, we set up with London Business School something called the Newton Venture Program to train the next generation of, of VC investors, LPs, and tech transfer officers. The key focus of the program is the vision is that by 2030, 50% of people investing in venture, 50% will be women and 50% will be from underrepresented populations. And, you know, the reason we believe that that's important is because if technology is serving society, people who are allocating the assets need to be representative of the society that we're trying to generate innovation for. So, you know, it's kind of common sense, but yeah, that impact piece is fundamental to us. It's not just sort of like words. It's baked into our business model with the the profit share and the share of carry uh, that goes into our foundation. And as far as we know, you know, this is this is pretty rare. Great. I mean, one thing in particular that doesn't get discussed at all, kind of nearly enough, is career development in, in venture, um, especially as it relates to economics. I mean, if you could discuss, you know, how, how do you approach this at Local Globe? Well, I mean, I, I think a number of newer firms, if you like, probably think more like operating companies uh, than funds. I mean, Andreessen, obviously, you know, uh, Scott Cooper, who, you know, I really admire in terms of how he has you know, supported and worked with, you know, Mark and Ben to create the business. But, you know, they have been very open about how they think of their business as a business, how they think of operating functions. You know, I think general capitalists are also very much thinking in in that way as well. And, you know, we we keep the business pretty simple. They're kind of three levels, if you like, in the business. There's an associate level, which is kind of entry level, you know, your first two or three years. There's sort of partner level, which might be like the three to five years after that. And then there's GP level. And, you know, at every one of those levels, there's very clear compensation uh, approach. And everyone in the organization is aware of how compensation works. So, you know, we, I think of compensation as having five different components. There's sort of your short-term compensation, which is obviously your salary. And depending on your level, I mean, there are effectively three different bands. It's like an operating company. You know, your midterm compensation is around what we have here is profit share. So, I mean, again, I think this is quite rare, is that, you know, to the extent that the management company is generating profits, we share those profits after we've allocated 10% of those profits to the foundation and 20% of the profits to a reserve. You know, the remaining 70%, we allocate 
to every team member at every level. So not just the GPs and the managing partners, but to everyone, including front of house. So, you know, we make profit share something that everyone participates in. And, you know, if if the way we think about compensation is to kind of maximize alignment with the founders and the CEOs that we invest in, you know, I think about uh, profit share as a way of maximizing alignment, in a sense, with ourselves. It's very useful for everyone to have profit share because it means that everyone needs to have a basic understanding of the organization's P&L. So if you decide, hey, you know, I've got to go to Paris tomorrow to chase this hot deal, you're aware of the fact that that travel expense is something that impacts the whole organization. And in most, most funds, you know, there is no cognizance of that. It's just like T&E is like hot and cold running water. And, you know, this is why... <laughs> You know, people talk about fees and downward pressures on fees in the industry. So that's sort of the midterm compensation. And then again, when it comes to carry, you know, everyone in the organization gets carry. People, not just on the investment team, but everyone on the operations team, again, including front of house. We also give carry to special advisors and business and venture partners. And, you know, carry obviously is about, I think, alignment, not just with LPs, but it's also about alignment with founders because carry to the extent that it materializes is a, you know, a seven to 12 year time horizon. And it means that, you know, you're really invested in the long term. So, you know, those, those are sort of the three Areas and, and the other thing I should just point out on carry, which we do, is that you know we have a number of different, as you know, fund vehicles. So we have our local Globe Seed Fund. We also have Latitude, which you know we can discuss if if you want. You know, which is a Series B plus breakout fund. Now, whether you major or minor on local Global Latitude, you know everyone gets equivalent carry across all funds, and everyone gets carry in every fund. So any, any new fund vehicle we create, if we create an SPV, if we have a co-invest vehicle, everyone gets carry in all of those funds. So again, you know, we, we think about how do we sort of, you know, really include everyone, align interests you know, not just internally, but with all of our different stakeholders, with the founders that we back um, and, and, you know, with the LPs who support us. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think this is a, a great segue because you mentioned Latitude. Um, so more recently, you've launched Local Globe's sister fund, Latitude, to, as you said, focus on later stages and, and breakout companies and opportunities. Can you speak to what drove the decision to to launch this effort? and um, and how's it gone? Sure. I mean, I think everything that we've done from going from angels to kind of what initially was an institutional super angel fund, or nowadays, I don't know, micro VC, emerging manager, et cetera, whatever you want to call it, 
we did it because at a certain point in time, you know, we'd made 30, 40 angel investments, my dad and I. And, you know, you want to both make more investments and also you want to be able to follow on or write bigger checks in some of those investments. So in 2008, you know, having been angel investing for eight or nine years, we partnered with a single LP, Horsley Bridge. And, you know, we were able to start to allocate a little bit more capital to our deals and kind of like, quote unquote, institutionalize our behavior a bit more. Seven years later, when we left Index and we wanted to create a fund and a platform, you know, we started to work with other LPs, you guys, um, which we're grateful for, supported that, that, that first fund after Index and some other great LPs. And, you know, we, we did that because we felt there was a, an opportunity to offer early stage founders in Europe, you know, what was starting to become more with the likes of uh, soft tech, I guess now called Uncork, uh, First Round, still called First Round, Freestyle, SV Angel and others. That ecosystem was starting to really become institutional, if you like, in the US at the time, but there wasn't really anything like that yet in Europe, although or, or there were a couple of people. Obviously, we'd done Seed Camp, but that was sort of like not really institutional yet. There was obviously uh, 0.9 was starting to get going. There was passion capital in, in the UK, but we kind of started Local Globe because it you know, became clear that to, to kind of keep doing what we were doing, it, we need to kind of professionalize. And, you know, by the time we got to, I'd say, 2016, and this had been in our mind for a while, and it's the, the obvious sort of evolution of, of, of vintages, is that, you know, as we started to see our 2008, 2012 vintages mature, and we knew that, you know, to use the, I don't know whether it's the Bill Gurley or someone else's adage of like, your fund size is your strategy. Mm -hmm. We knew we wanted Local Globe to not get above a certain size because, you know, you get above a certain size and you stop being a seed fund. And um, even in today's rounds where the size of a seed round is, quite frankly, the size of a Series B when I was a founder. <laughs> but, you know, we started to see these companies coming through and we've always felt like, you know, you want to keep your seed fund at a certain level. So our strategy with Local Globe was, you know, be in the pre-seed or the seed, you know, participate in the A where it makes sense for the company. By the way, it doesn't always make sense for the company. Like they often want you to step back from your pro rata. But, you know, a great example, I think, is TransferWise, now called Wise. So we'd invested in the seed round, the $6 million seed round in, I don't know, 2011. We then invested in the Series A, I don't know, $14, 20000000 million post-money Series A. And then, you know, we didn't have capital to invest in the B. And we didn't have capital to invest in the C, but we were still close to the company and we'd get monthly updates and you'd see this double digit growth. And it sort of got to a point where I think, you know, they were raising their series D 
at a billion and a half, which is like a big step up from you know the seed in the Series A. And we thought, you know what? Like we still see really significant upside in this business. You know, we'd like to invest. So we put an SPV together. Some of our LPs participated in that. And we could just see then a pipeline of more wises coming. And so, you know, we thought, you know, we need an institutional way of capturing the breakouts. And one of our LPs, you know, said to us, you know, this isn't a growth fund. You know, this isn't an opportunity fund. It's a breakout fund. And, you know, that made sense. So we stuck with that. And, you know, that's what it is. It's a breakout fund. And 65% of the first latitude fund were local globe breakouts. And so far in the second latitude fund, you know, the numbers are pretty similar. And, you know, these are companies we talk about having access and insight to, you know, that often we've known these companies since, you know, being part of their seed round. And we've seen them grow and develop. And, you know, Latitude gives us an opportunity to kind of re-underwrite the opportunity, but with a different lens and with a different vehicle. So, you know, at Local Globe, you're underwriting an opportunity and you're saying, can this investment return our fund? With Latitude, we're saying, you know, these are still early stage businesses where we see a lot of upside. You know, could we see a 10x from here? And what's quite interesting is now that, you know, this plays out further, we noticed 12 to 18 months ago, we had 25 companies that were 18 to 24 months away from IPO. We actually have had six IPOs in Q3. We had two on one day in July. Um, You could say, like, that's indicative of the market, or you could just say that's the maturing of a portfolio that's got 20 unicorns in it. But what also became clear there, and again, temperamentally, we've always said, like, as a, to go back to, like, this is our money, and what is the right thing for the business, and where do we see the business today? So to go back to the wise story, we did the seed, we did the Series A, we had to miss the B and the C, We invested in the billion and a half, I'm talking dollars here, D. We invested in structured secondary uh, at three and a half twice. We invested at five billion. And then because we strongly view an IPO as a financing event, not the end of the road, you know, we also, while we distributed shares to our LPs who had been part of the seed fund that invested in 2011. We also, from our own internal team vehicle, invested in to the IPO at, at eight pounds because, you know, we still see a two to three X from here. And I mean, when I go back and look at the 32 IPOs, that I've been directly or indirectly involved with, at least 20 out of the 32 are sitting at 2 to 9x since they went public, depending on how long they've been public for. So, you know, we think there's a lot of growth still, even in great companies, 
at those later stages as well. And, you know, when you've seen a founder go on that journey, you know, if you still see upside, you know, obviously you're, re -un you're underwriting for a different type of return. We, we've, we've wanted to do that. So, you know, we created Latitude because it didn't make sense to keep doing all the SPVs. And, you know, as we're looking at this later stage pipeline, you know, we're doing what we always do is if we believe in it, we're starting with our own money. You know, we, we've alluded to this before, touched on how, you know, you and Local Globe broadly are very committed to kind of cultivating the European seed stage and the broader venture ecosystem here. Another initiative that, that you've been talking about recently is, is Basecamp, where you're kind of backing emerging managers as an LP. Um, so with, with Basecamp in mind, do you have any advice you'd give someone thinking about kind of taking that leap? raising a venture fund, any common mistakes or best practices you'd share with emerging managers? What I would say is follow OpenLP on Twitter. <laughs> you know, there is this uh, really knowledgeable partner at, at Sapphire Ventures called Beza Clarkson. And, you know, anything you want to know about raising capital as, a, as an LP, Beza and, and team are, are on top of. I mean, seriously, I think one of the things that's really changed is that, you know, the information available, and it started for entrepreneurs with YC and TechCrunch in a sense, and now it's starting for investors with things like OpenLP, OnDeck, Newton, etc. The ability to become a, an angel to be an early stage investor, the line between, I mean, if you'd said five years ago to most institutional LPs, will you back a solo GP? They'd basically laugh you out the room. Or they'd say, yeah, if it's like Steve Anderson once or Oren Zev, like twice. But, you know, if you'd said, oh, you know, Elad Gill was going to raise 300 million and then 500 million and have Harvard endowments as one of his anchor LPs, you know, no one would have said that was possible. No one would have talked about rolling funds on AngelList, and no one would have talked about DAOs and syndicate DAOs. So I think, you know, again, having been an angel, tw you know, 20 years ago, having started SeedCamp, you know, I've always been interested in new ways to... I mean, for want of a better word, invest in the asset class, different approaches. And, you know, I, I think uh, things are just getting more and more interesting. And with Basecamp, I mean, it's, again, back to the, you know, we do things. And then when it gets to a point where you're doing it so much or often enough, you need to put some structure and form around it let's say seven to 10 years ago, me and my dad started making angel investments in other funds. And it's like, you know, it's sort of funds that a friend would set up, just being, you know, helpful, supportive, et cetera. And I'd say once Latitude came into view three years ago, it was clear that, you know, not only was it helpful and supportive to other people you were part of the same ecosystem. And this wasn't just in the UK and Europe, it was also in the US. 
was, you know, we understood with latitude that we could get the potentially very structured deal flow at series B plus, you know, through uh, micro funds, emerging managers. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we are angel investors in the last count, I think 45 other micro funds or emerging managers, probably 20 in Europe, around three in Israel, one in India, and about 15 to 20 in the US. And, you know, it's a combination of uh, funds that, you know, give us more geographic reach outside of our core geography and offer structured deal flow for latitude, as well as very specialist funds in areas where, you know, we are, we're investing, but, you know, we'll never be as deep as a crypto-only fund or a climate-only fund or a computer vision-only fund or a computational biology fund uh, or an AI-first fund. And so, you know, we've tried to combine those two aspects of geographic coverage and sector specialism to kind of increase the sort of the structured surface area for sourcing. And we thought originally it would just be useful for latitude, but it turns out it's actually really helpful for local globe because a lot of these funds, you know, are delighted to co-invest with, with local globe. And first and foremost, you know, Basecamp is a community. So, you know, it's a community that meets at least once a quarter. It's a peer group, you know, where first-time managers are learning from one another, but also we're putting some of our LPs in front of them to kind of share best practice. You know, you guys are, are doing something. You know, we had one of your former colleagues, Winter, do something around SPV structuring. We've had uh, members of the network do kind of page turns of their last fundraising deck so other people can, can see how they've done it. So, you know, it's really tough. Well, it's not as easy as it looks to raise um, a fund. You guys know that. There's only a limited amount of bandwidth. It's not so much the capital. There's only a limited amount of bandwidth that you know, most high quality LPs have. And so, you know, we try and again, in the same way that Local Globe is trying to improve the chances of a company going from a seed to a great Series A, you know, I think as we think further down the line with Basecamp, we're thinking about how do you improve the possibility for a first-time manager or a solo GP or, you know, what one of our founders calls industrial angels to the extent that they want to institutionalize. And some of them don't. Some of them don't want to get above 20 million or 30 million. Some of them don't want endowments, pension funds, even funder funds. But some of them do. And, you know, we're fortunate to have a great LP base ourselves. And that LP base is also really curious because that's why they're great LPs about what comes next not just, you know, what's doing well today. Great. Well, now shifting gears a little bit to more of a kind of macro and market conversation, you've had a super unique perspective, having been actively investing in, in the European tech ecosystem since, you know, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. 
we, we've talked about throughout this conversation some really interesting anecdotes of how the European landscape and, and tech kind of ecosystem has evolved, what the kind of most notable changes have been. I guess two-part question. First is, any other kind of notable changes you've observed that's you know worth highlighting here? But secondly, would love to hear your view on what the potential for Europe is going forward. What does venture and, and tech in Europe look like in five years and 10 years? And what are the most kind of important things that that need to happen in Europe um, for that kind of vision to be to be realized? Sure. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, this this is and it has been a kind of a quite a connected ecosystem for quite a while now. And by that, I mean, not just within Europe, but between Europe and the US and increasingly between Europe and Asia. And maybe starting at the end, one of the biggest challenges that the European ecosystem, I think, has in terms of to like really realize its full potential is that it's getting pretty good at attracting international capital. So, you know, to the extent that, you know, European companies are getting bigger, staying independent longer, even going public, I say, you know, a lot of the breakouts and scale-up funding is still coming from non-domestic and non-European sources. So, you know, from the US, from Asia, from the Middle East. And, you know, I mean, you can say that, so what? I mean, as long as there is capital for those businesses, so what? But if you think about assets owners as playing an important role in the kind of the, the society, in that the ultimate beneficiaries of these investments are, you know, paying people's pensions, you know, paying off their insurance policy, you know, making sure hospitals stay open, making sure tuition, you know, you've got the best in class research and teaching facilities at universities, you know, making sure that the environment uh, is, is looked after. You want to encourage as much domestic capital as possible as well. So, I mean, when you look at where Europe is today or the UK is today, as I said, you know, relative to where it was 10 years ago, just to take the UK, there's 13x more capital in venture than 10 years ago. There are 10x more unicorns than 10 years ago. So you could say like, Okay, that makes sense. You know, there are more unicorns, there's more capital. But when you look at the different stages and you look at those stages relative to other geographies and Deal Room have done some really great analysis here. If you look at sort of the early stage where local globe plays, you know, rounds of one to 15 million, like seeds through series A, let's call that early stage still. You know, Europe relative to the US and Asia is actually at a par with the US in terms of amounts of capital and activity, and actually, you know, potentially even more so. But when you get to the breakout stage, companies raising between 15 and 100 million, you know, Europe relative to the US is like a third, and even relative to Asia starts being less than Asia. And then when you get to the scale-up stage, 
you know, like the pre-public stages of rounds of 100 million plus, you know, Europe is a fifth of the US and like a third of China or Asia even, not even China, but Asia in general. So when you look at, however, the volume of startups and the number of unicorns, as I said, you know, New Palo Alto after the Bay Area and Beijing has more unicorns, not per capita, period, more unicorns than any other geography. But the funding relative to, say, New York has more funding than New Palo Alto. And, you know, so the sophistication of funding in our ecosystem, particularly at the breakout and scale-up phase, is anemic. It's there, and there's, you know, it's not like Kazoo and Deliveroo and Dark Trace and Oxford Nanopore and Spotify and all of these companies aren't able to raise money. They are. But when they are raising money, a lot of the money is non-domestic. So, you know, I think there are two things that will and need to happen in the next 10 years. One is more capital at the breakout stage, more capital at the scale-up stage, which is presumably why your direct team now has a team in Europe, as do others. Uh, And then the other thing is I think you will see more asset owners, and by that I mean pension funds, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, allocate more capital to their domestic markets, A, because the opportunity is increasingly clear and transparent, and and B, because, you know, that's where returns are coming from, increasingly in the private markets. So, you know, it's not possible to ignore anymore. And and I think, you know, those two things are sort of big changes. And I mean, just to put this in perspective, Morgan Stanley did this great long report on the shift from public to private markets. It was just a US only analysis, but there was sort of this one data point that really resonates to me, which is a 1% shift of pension fund allocation in the US to the private markets is 370 billion. The total U.S. venture market is something like three hundred billion. So, like a one percent shift in pension fund allocation. Now, you know, remember, if you're an asset owner who is sort of at the most aggressive end of the spectrum, call it Yale, you are already allocating twenty five percent or more to venture, not even to the private markets. Most pension funds are maybe allocating two or three or four or five percent to the asset class. So just like a one percent shift, I'm not talking about a 20 percent shift, is a wall of money. And, you know, I think if we think there's a lot of money in the private markets today, we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, again, not to belabor the point, but I think it's a really interesting data point is, you know, Goldman's have talked about taking Greenhill public, which is the division within their asset management division that invests in the management companies of PE funds and increasingly venture funds. And the data points that the FT pulled out from Prequin is that there's 10 trillion in the alternative 
asset allocation buckets today, 10 trillion goes to 15 trillion by 2025. So there's 5 trillion more coming into alternatives. And I think a disproportionate amount of that comes to the innovation economy, for want of, for want of a better word. And hopefully, you know, we can structure ourselves in Europe and in the UK in a way where that's not just non-domestic capital. Great. Saul, thank you again for spending the time sharing some of your wisdom. I know I've personally learned a lot. Well, thank, thank you. And, you know, you guys have, as I said, you've been great supporters from the get-go. And, you know, I think the work that you guys are doing to demystify the asset allocator and the LP side of the ecosystem is really, really important because, you know, like I said, I think if you look at the level of innovation that emerged post-YC, post-tech crunch, like the democratization of entrepreneurship, if you like, you know, I think the next decade in terms of democratizing access to private markets for investors is is super exciting. And, you know, you guys are leading the way. So thank you. Great. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks all. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We want to thank our hosts for this season, Sapphire Partners. Be sure to follow their OpenLP initiative on Twitter and sign up for a monthly newsletter of LP and GP perspectives on OpenLP.com.